I think we will be successful if we keep that in mind, which is follow the most interesting entrepreneurs, be open-minded, do your diligence to figure out, do you believe the story they're telling you, but then be willing to take uh, risks on things that may be outside of your you know, conventional sense of wisdom. From Comcast, NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast for entrepreneurs that inspires and elevates innovative products to their full potential. I'm Danielle Kahn, and today we're chatting with author, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, Scott Cooper. In this episode, you'll hear Scott's best advice on how to score venture capital for your startup, if that's really your goal. Scott is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most prominent VCs in Silicon Valley. Over the past decade, they have made strategic bets on startups that have made billions. Now Scott's opening up about the secrets of Sand Hill Road the street where VCs reign in the valley. So if you're curious about what VCs say when you're not in the room and how they decide to invest, keep listening. So Scott just had an amazing conversation with in front of the Philadelphia community, really about not just your book, but your philosophy kind of behind the book, what it's like to access capital in the valley and I'm going to actually start it off with a similar question that you were asked this morning as a female founder myself and as, as an organization really focused on helping diverse people from all backgrounds, um, women, people of color to access new capital and be able to grow their businesses. You chose in your book to use the pronoun she or her on a regular basis. And I want to kick it off with that because... That is very intentional, and I'd like you to talk about why you chose to go that path in your book. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, yeah. thank you for having me here. It's great to be with Comcast, NBC, and Lyft Labs as part of this uh, discussion today. You know, uh, look, a, a book alone is certainly not going to solve the challenges that we have in the industry around inclusion. And, you know, we talked a little bit this morning with the group that, you know, female you know, funding is something like 2% of total venture capital. You know, there's a relatively small number of female general partners. That's true also of kind of obviously eth ethnic group diversity. It's also true generally of geographic diversity in the U.S. as well, right? So we know here in Philly, but even, you know, California, New York, and Boston still take a predominant amount of funding. And so my hope in the book was a couple things. Number one is I hope that if we could demystify the business, it actually at least opens up doors that may not have been opened up before, that people feel like it's not such a black box. It's not so hard to approach the business. And the reason I use the pronouns, you know, she and her in the business is just, it's just a small way to at least acknowledge that, hey, look, how we talk about things matters, you know, words do matter in many respects. And I just think we've got an obligation as an industry to think about, look, what can we do to help improve kind of broader connectivity into networks that historically have been, you know, relatively non-diverse networks. Great. You did mention just, you know, that two and a half, some under right. two and a half percent. Exactly. All the dollars flowing through are going to, to female founders. And the year before that, it was the same. I know. I Actually, know. yeah. Didn't change. Right. Down to the 10th of a decimal point, right? Yes. Right? Yeah. You talk about that in general, but like what really in your mind, if you had a magic wand, what truly would move the needle? So the way we think about the challenge is we think about it as a network connectivity challenge. And what I mean by that is I can say it. I'll use myself as an example, right? So I grew up in Houston. I was lucky enough to go to school at Stanford. I've been in the Bay Area for a long time. Whether I want to acknowledge it or not, like my networks are implicitly biased by the set of networks and people that I've come across. And, you know, they're as diverse as, you know, at least I've tried to make them to be, which, you know, means they're heavily informed by kind of the experiences I've had before. And my experience is probably not that different from a lot of people in the industry today. So 
I think the way we, we at least have to try to solve this problem is we've got to kind of deliberately reach out and increase our connectivity into networks that are otherwise historically not in the kind of common set of networks that we otherwise know. So an example of that would be, look, when we're recruiting for employees at the firm, we try to send out our recs in addition to putting them out on the Stanford website and on LinkedIn, we send them out to groups that we think might have networks that are traditionally underrepresented. So uh, there's a group that some people may know about called MLT, which is you know uh, helping professionals in the African-American community look for finance and other jobs. And so we deliberately say, hey, look, let's at least reach out to those communities because we don't have great connectivity there and hopefully they'll help us. And so it's things like that. You know, We do a lot of marketing events, a lot of you know stuff for the firm. And as we think about the invite list for those events, again, we really try to think about, okay, how can we extend, you know, kind of invitations to people who, again, might be otherwise not always included on those lists. And our, our hope is that if we do that, therefore, we become more accessible. It doesn't feel, again, like it's such a hard thing to break into. And over time, then we can obviously tap into the incredible talent that we know exists in those markets, but for which we're just not, you know, oftentimes well set up to reach. And uh, as a leader, why do you think you've chosen to talk about that and make that a part of your story? Are there women in your life who are impacting that? Like what, where's that coming from? Uh, I, I, I mean, I certainly do. So I have three daughters, but it's actually funny. Somebody made a comment to me that, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to have daughters to care about this stuff. And and I, I agree with them. So I don't want to. But in to. general, men who do have daughters. It is true. Yeah. Actually, there's, there's care a little more. That's or, exactly right. There's right. actually some academic research, I think, in the venture community even, right, that shows that kind of male general partners who have daughters actually have more diverse female or greater representation of female founders in their portfolios. So whether, again, maybe this is all goes back to the same implicit bias issue we talked about, which is you have implicit signals that drive you in directions. Look, aside from the fact that I have three daughters, you know, who I, you know, kind of hope have all kinds of experiences open to them. I, I just think we're at a point where we know that there's great talent out there and it's uncomfortable to talk about the subject sometimes because nobody wants to think they're biased. And I get it. And look, I, I certainly don't think that I'm explicitly biased, uh, you know, but I think you can relax the constraint and say, look. It doesn't matter if you're explicitly biased. The point is just you're informed by the networks and the places you came from. And just let's just recognize that. And I think it's important for the industry. You know, I think it'd be great for the industry for the next 20, 30, 50 years to have more entrepreneurship generally. And I think to have more entrepreneurship generally, that means we have to kind of expand beyond the traditional bases. And it means we've got to do that gender-wise. We've got to do that ethnicity-wise. We've got to do it geographically. So um, I was the chairman of the National Venture Capital Association. And one of the big initiatives we were trying to do was to go spend more time in markets that are outside of the coasts and say, okay, how can we actually help foster entrepreneurship in Michigan or Indiana or places like that? And, you know, I think it's important for kind of, you know, global competitiveness for the U.S. I think it's important for economic growth, for job growth. And so, you know, from a, even just a pure selfless perspective, it's in our own self-interest to actually have more diversity in this industry. So as a, as a VC, you end up probably placing bets and 50% hit. Maybe that's is that a generous number? I think that's probably, yeah, hit, hit, <laughs> hit meaning you, you may not lose all your money, yeah, but uh, but not hit as in uh, it's Facebook. <laughs> right, okay, but uh, yeah, so you didn't take a loss on right. 50%, Exactly, right, congratulations, you only lost half your money, <laughs> right. right, yeah. What do you think out of the 50 that didn't make it, what was the one thing that you think all of those companies were missing? What's the missing ingredient? And at the same time, What's the winning ingredient? Maybe there isn't one, yeah. but if you maybe you can name one ingredient, each one of those categories. All right, yeah. So can I name two? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So I, let's let's take the kind of unsuccessful case of companies. There's kind of the case which I would say is, you know what? They were good venture bets that just didn't work out for no anybody's fault, right? So an example of that would be, hey, look, 
the market just wasn't what we thought it was, or the product didn't turn out to resonate the way we did. We had a company called Rockmelt, uh, which actually was some of our friends from the Allowed Cloud and Opsware days who started this uh, incredible entrepreneurs, Eric Vishry and Tim Howes. And Eric has gone on to be an incredibly successful venture partner at Benchmark now. And they were trying to build a new mobile browser. Uh, and this was, we invested them probably, they started probably 2007, 2008. We invested in 2009. And it was, you know, a really interesting idea. We thought the market needed it. It was an incredible team of brilliant people. And they hired a fantastic team around them. And they launched the product. And you know what? It was just didn't take that much, right? There were only so many users who said, hey, it's like that much better than my Google browser experience or otherwise that, you know, I'm not willing to switch in order to do that. They ultimately sold it to Yahoo. And again, it was one of those exits where, you know, it wasn't, didn't, it didn't yield a lot of return for people. But, you know, when we look at that and you do the postmortem on that one, I think quite frankly, we would do that investment all over again. And so th this is an important thing, I think, in mistakes in the venture business. You have to make sure you learn the right lessons from mistakes. And the lesson often is, hey, like that was actually a fine venture investment. And yes, sometimes markets don't work or products don't take the way you think they do, but you would still do that again. The other big failure case, though, tends to be where it may not be a market or product problem, but it's an organizational scaling problem. And this is really also what I would say is the major success case criteria that when I first started this business, I guess I would have thought it's all about product, right? And you either like nail the product, best product always wins. But I think we know in technology markets going literally all the way back to Microsoft and, you know, Excel versus Lotus Notes and Word versus WordPerfect. Most people who were users of those products would tell you that actually the other products were way better than Microsoft products, but execution mattered. They did a great job of bundling those products and kind of selling a package and it made a huge difference. And, you know, to this day, obviously those are tremendously successful products, notwithstanding the fact that most people probably aren't in love with, with the features of those products. So that's kind of the, both the, the kind of failure case and the success case are one and the same, which is you know, you got to get the product right at some point in time. It's obviously got to be in demand by the company, but it's often these decisions about, do I hire the right executives at the right time? Do I think about scaling the business in the right way? Do I take cues from the market around how I'm selling to kind of change things? And it's these organizational dynamics, which really leads us back to kind of, you know, what we talked about this morning in the group is it's why the team element of evaluation for the deal is so important because you can change products. In theory, markets will evolve over time. I'm a big believer, unfortunately, people don't change. And so you kind of get what you get with those individuals. And if you get kind of leadership qualities and, you know, intellectual uh, qualities that allow them to kind of, you know, make the changes that are appropriate, both product-wise and organizationally-wise over the course of the business, that to me is kind of the, the difference between those, you know, success and failure cases. What's the story of a company without naming the company itself where you loved the product, but you chose not to make an investment because you didn't believe in the team? I talked about this one in the book, so I can I can name a name here without getting myself into too much trouble. So I talked about in the book about how we passed on Square. So many people probably know Square, right, which has become an incredibly successful. At the last I checked, it's a, you know, 30, 40, $50 billion public company. So an incredible venture investment and congratulations to all the VCs who invested. At the very first round when we saw it, Jack was not actually uh, the CEO of the company. So if you remember Jack, who's yeah. the co-founder of Twitter, Jack of Dorsey. Uh, he was actually the kind of, they call it an executive chairman, which is, I don't know exactly what that word means, but it means he wasn't the CEO. He had this other guy, Jim McElvey, who was the co-founder and CEO of the company. And Jim was a longtime friend of his. They'd grown up, I think, in St. Louis or, or in Kansas City together. And the backstory was really cool, which is Jim McElvey was a professional glassblower was what, how he made his living. And he would go around to fairs and sell his wares. Uh, he was a maker. He was a maker, right? And he needed something. That's to... exactly right. He got frustrated because people didn't have cash on them. And so like, you know, this idea of, you know, a portable kind of, you know, credit card charger essentially, uh, you know, kind of came to light as part of that. So 
we thought the idea was really cool. Uh, we thought they had some really interesting ideas about how they would build it. We weren't sure. It's one of these things we call these two-stage rockets that was a little bit uh, hard for us to evaluate, which is the first stage was you had to go get proliferation of you know the dongle, the square dongle, in order to be in that business. And that's just not that interesting of a business when you look at it from a margin structure. It's a relatively low margin business. But the story they told, and to Jack Dorsey's credit, the story they delivered on was once we have that base of merchants, then we can add all these ancillary services on, and that's where you generate the profit margin for this business. So you know we would call that a two-stage rocket, right? You got to kind of light the boosters independently on both stages. Anyways, we ended up passing on it for one reason, which was that Jack was not the CEO and Jim was the CEO. And we had a quick time to kind of evaluate the deal. And we just didn't really know Jim. We didn't have a way to kind of, you know, uh, evaluate his skills in a short period of time. And we loved the idea of Jack being there. We knew him well, but we we kind of felt like, hey, look, for an A-round bet, we, we got to be super comfortable with the CEO. You would have made a bet on Jack. That's exactly right. Now, yeah. the mistake we made, which we talk about in the book, is Jack recognized as well that kind of, you know, his highest and best use in the company was to be the CEO of the company. And so about three, four or five months, it was pretty short in time. He replaced Jim as the CEO, became the full-time CEO of the company. And to this day, obviously runs it alongside running Twitter, which is an incredible feat in and of itself. And one of the things that was super critical, not only did we think Jack would be great as a CEO and a product person, but, you know, we often talk about this concept of celebrity CEOs in some respects. And, and I mean that in the utmost respect, which is because I don't want to diminish any of Jack's uh, also core talents as a product specialist, you know, somebody like him has the ability to open doors that other people just can't open, right? When they were at Twitter, Ev is, at the time, his partner was able to go on the Oprah Winfrey show, right? And do this whole Twitter reveal. I don't even remember what year this was. And, you know, magically acquired millions of customers for almost no cost. And so when Jack pitched us the business, he mentioned, hey, look, one of the things that I think we might be able to do is to leverage some of those relationships. He had a great relationship with Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan. And I remember in the pitch too, Jack said, hey, look, I think we can go to somebody like Jamie Dimon and I can personally get to him directly because I've got a relationship there and, you know, talk to him about maybe he will bundle the square dongle with their corporate credit card as a way to get in. And so there were all these other ancillary marketing benefits that came from the previous successes Jack had had that now were kind of going to be unfair benefits that would accrue to Square. And unfortunately for us, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't value those appropriately in, you know, concluding that we weren't going to invest in the company. So do you kick yourself on that one or is there another one that you kick yourself even more on? You always kick yourself. So I think of this business as there's two mistakes you can make in this business. There's the mistake of commission, right? Which is you invest in a company that turns out not to be an interesting company and you don't make a good financial return. And those are unfortunate and, you know, y'all, you wish those didn't happen. But I think that is just, as we talked about, that's the nature of this business. And uh, you have to be out on the risk curve and being out on the risk curve means that you are going to fail a lot of times. And so- we, as I mentioned, like we tend not to beat ourselves up on those, and we tend also to make sure that we learn the right lessons from them and don't conclude, like as I talked about in that rock melt case, we would go invest in Eric and Tim again in probably the same idea uh, because, you know, that's a reasonable venture bet. It's the second category, right? These mistakes of omission that really hurt, right? Because on the mistake of commission, you can only lose the amount of money you invested. On the mistake of omission, you've now given up the opportunity cost of all the upside that a square you know, uh, yields to its investors. So yeah, they're painful. Um, we are an investor in Airbnb now, which is great. And, you know, we did also pass on the first round of Airbnb, but then luckily sometimes in this business, you get a chance to remedy your mistakes. And so we did the next round and obviously, you know, it was a more expensive round than the first round, but we still felt like even at that entry point, you know, that there was a tremendous running room and, you know, we'll, we'll be very happy ultimately kind of with the investment we made there. But those are the things. I think you probably kick yourself more for the mistakes of omission than commission because by definition, 
the omission ones, uh, there aren't that many of them basically that are successful, right? So if you miss if you miss too many that are successful, it's very hard to make this business work. Sidebar on the Airbnb. I worked in the travel industry for a long time and I was at the conference where Airbnb was first announced and was sitting with a whole slew of hoteliers who poo-pooed the Airbnb concept. And I turned to them and said, that is what is going to completely disrupt the hotel wow, industry. Good for you. Um, I never made a bet. I was going to say, Airbnb. if only if only you had. I should have right. gone with my gut, <laughs> but um, you know, years later, they were attempting to get the hotel room tax essentially to also cover Airbnb. And when you think about other forms of disruption that are out there, and what's on your radar, what are you looking for? Like, where do you think the greatest opportunity that isn't being talked about yet? What's out there? Uh, I'm really excited about what we're doing in kind of what we call bio, our bio fund, which is the intersection of life sciences and computer science. And if you think about traditional biotech for a long time, which has obviously been incredibly successful in terms of developing drugs and diagnostics, it's basically what I would consider 100% science risk, which is you literally have biologists and chemists sitting there with pipettes and moving liquids across things, and they're brilliant, but it's a process of repetition and of hypothesis and you know testing and then changing our hypothesis. And that's wonderful. But what's amazing now about just with the evolution of computers and the, in the intersection of computers and life sciences is we can potentially turbocharge the incredible brain power that exists in many of these biologists and chemists with the benefit of computers who can do incredible high throughput testing, who can do things like artificial intelligence, which may, you know, enable them to see patterns at a level that, you know, kind of, you know, the human otherwise can't. And those are the kinds of things we're trying to invest in. And these are incredibly ambitious projects. We have a company called Freenome that's trying to build a traditional blood test, just like you might take a cholesterol test at your doctor and, you know, be able to detect all stages of cancer and what type of cancer it is, what stage it is. Um, and you can imagine, right, in this kind of what if scenario of what could the world be like if every time you go get your cholesterol checked, they just take an extra vial of blood and they can tell you, great, you have stage one, you know, prostate cancer. And by the way, we know the survival rates are incredibly good when we see these things early. And so it changes the whole potential trajectory. So Anyways, that is super interesting to me and, and probably the, one of the This is actually the bio convention is in Philadelphia. That's right. I know. Week. I saw that right this morning so at our hotel. Been people yeah. People all over the city, 13,000 people. Yeah. We actually hosted one of their receptions in the building. And bio, I mean, it, it is a huge market, but it's a, it's a long game. It is. Right? It's so a long game. For those yeah. investments, um, what's the what's the time frame on some of your your bets there? You know, look, they're going to be long. So uh, I don't know what the time period will ultimately be. But look, I think you've got to assume these are 10 plus year bets, right? And you know, the good news is we're set up to do that. I mean, our funds have lives of that scale. Sometimes we will invest in multiple rounds across different funds as a way to kind of extend the life. So we're prepared for that. And we're also prepared for the fact that, look, a lot of these, as we know, just aren't going to be successful despite the brilliance of the entrepreneurs who are doing these things. So if I could, let me give you my non-answer to your question. because okay. I, I uh, <laughs> So my non-answer to your question is, despite the fact that I have ideas about what may be out there, I actually don't think that's our job to predict the future, as, safe, as crazy as that may seem. Seem. We think about the business we're in as we're in the talent business. And we've always invested on this theme called software is eating the world. My partner, Mark Andreessen, wrote this editorial in the Wall Street Journal almost 10 years ago now. And the basic idea was that as we view software as this very broad, horizontal enabling technology that over time will permeate all kinds of industries. It'll permeate life sciences and fintech and transportation and hotels. And Mainly, we view our job as we should get ourselves in front of all the most interesting entrepreneurs who are doing something where software is the foundational layer of the technology, and then keep our mind open to allow them to drag us into a new area that we might not have thought was actually ripe for disruption, and hopefully be open-minded. We, we use this term called prepared mind internally, 
which means we ought to have a thesis and we clearly have our ideas, but we don't want to be kind of too tops down thesis driven that we miss what might be an outlier business. And so that's kind of the non-answer to your question is, look, I, I think we will be successful if we keep that in mind, which is follow the most interesting entrepreneurs, be open-minded, do your diligence to figure out, do you believe the story they're telling you, but then be willing to take risks on things that may be outside of your you know, conventional sense of wisdom. That's fantastic. Just as a follow-up on that, on storytelling, it is all about the story, right? You can have a great product, but if your story stinks or you can't get your story in front of the right decision makers or you haven't perfected your pitch or you know you don't know your audience, can you talk about the importance of storytelling in pitching to you and, and to other partners? Yeah, it's it's incredibly important. And I think one of the most underrated skills of great entrepreneurs, and by the way, just to be clear with your listeners, uh, we mean storytelling in the good way, which is not kind of don't don't invent stories and make things up, right? We're talking about it's really how can you articulate a vision that is going to cause people to follow you when in some cases it might be crazy for them to follow you. I, I made this reference once and, and we'll see if it works or not here, but you know, arguably, maybe we should be investing in, you know, people who are training for the seminary or for other kind of, you know, religious roles, which is you have to have people who are literally willing to follow somebody, despite the fact that, you know, there's not necessarily yet kind of hard, tangible proof of everything they're saying, but, you know, they have the passion, they have the belief, and they have the ability to, quite frankly, you know, have people come along with them. So And can clearly articulate and can what clearly the articulate. actual That's exactly right. product yeah. is. Yeah. And the reason why it's so important, it just goes back to fundamental principles, which is we know that if you've got a great idea, the likelihood is, look, someone else probably has thought about that idea. So the markets are going to be competitive. So the question the VCs are trying to answer is not necessarily, is your idea or your market interesting, but why you versus somebody else, right? That's the fundamental question. And that's why the storytelling is so important, right? Because if the VCs can get comfortable to say, hey, look, I know that this person's going to be able to recruit the best employees. They're going to be able to go to Comcast and convince Comcast why they should use their product when you know it's much safer for Comcast to use some other product they're doing. They're going to be able to go to the next VC who's the next funder and tell that story. All those things, kind of that level of kind of, you know, kind of emotional appeal that a good story has is just kind of the foundational criteria for success. So really about the back to the book specifically, if you were to, in a nutshell, give two tips out of your book, and I, the book is incredible in that it's such a, a strong to do that you really feel there's lots of actionable items in there that you can create your plan almost from it, right? What are two tips that you would give to listeners? How do you get in front of people like you? And how do you really close a deal? And how prepared do you need to be? All right. So tip number one to me, which is just the, the foundational piece, is understand why you're raising venture capital and what that means for your business. And what I mean by that is do you have the same set of ambitions and interests as the, your venture capitalist who's investing there? And I know that sounds almost commonplace and trite, but I think we often just default. We say, hey, you know, my friend over there raised venture, so therefore venture may be right for me. And the answer may be yes or maybe no, but it is very company specific, right? Are you intending to build some large freestanding, potentially public company someday? Is that your goal and your ambition with what you want to achieve in your professional career? And if so, I think venture is a good candidate. But if not, I think there are other forms of financing that make sense. But is raising venture funding a signal that you are a legitimate business? Maybe some people have that in their minds, but I, I don't personally subscribe to that and don't believe it. I mean, there are wonderful businesses out there that have never raised venture funding that went to banks or raised money from friends and family or, or bootstrapped. bootstrapped themselves, right? And so the honest answer is, look, that's the majority of businesses in this country. So, you know, venture 
venture plays a very prominent role because uh, we get the chance to you know do podcasts and talk to important people like Comcast. But the reality is, is most company formation in the U.S. is actually not venture financed company and formation. That is, I think, one of the biggest tips that you could give. Yeah. yeah. Because people have a mindset that without venture funding, that they're not as good as okay. others. Well, good. Well, right? I'm glad we I'm glad we underscored that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, the numbers the numbers tell the truth on that, which is, look, that is where most company formation does not happen through venture. So that's definitely piece number one. Piece number two for me, um, you know, we talked about this in the date and I somewhat euphemistically talk about this concept of marriage and dating, right? That, you know, uh, entering into these relationships are very long-lived relationships, right? And so you're probably, if you take venture capital money, if you're successful, you will have venture capitalists working with you for eight, 10, 12 years. And, you know, as, as I mentioned in the book, that's longer than most people, you know, get married, uh, stay married for in the US, unfortunately. And so the concept of dating is really important. And I mean that in the most sincere place, which is there's kind of like two parts of that, which is does the venture capitalists do and are they interested in the kinds of things that I want? So that's kind of the weeding out process of, hey, make sure that you focus on the venture capitalists that make most sense for your business. But then 90%, at least in my mind, of your decision then becomes, okay, do I believe like I will learn from this individual? Do I get along with them? Will they add value to my company? And I think sometimes in the interest of getting a deal done that people kind of give too little attention to those aspects. And, you know, as with so many things in life, unfortunately, interpersonal relationships are the things that determine success or failure in many relationships. And I think people forget about that. And then my final piece of advice would be if you've gotten through those first two pieces, then make sure you understand the right amount of money to raise where you are based upon kind of how you think about what the next milestone is for the business. So what we often tell entrepreneurs is when you're raising, for example, your series A round, you ought to be already thinking about what is the story that I'm going to tell at the series B round? What is the money that I need and the time frame I need to in order to accomplish the milestones that will make sure that there will be a willing series B investor there at hopefully a price, obviously, that's higher than the series A person did because you want to you want the perfect world if you can of kind of this monotonically increasing share price over time. And so kind of thinking about critically about how much do I raise that gives me the right level of ability to kind of de-risk that next round scenario is, I think, a really critical piece. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing the secrets of Sand Hill Road. Everyone should go out and get a copy. I'm Danielle Kahn from Lift Labs at Comcast NBC Universal. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by my friend Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Lauren Hunter. Editing by Max Graham. Original music by Lee Rosevere. And theme music by The Last Generation on film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.